Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Angel of Words podcast, where your stories are heard. I'm your host, Angel of Words. And before we get started, don't forget to punch that notification bell, subscribe, follow us on all podcast platforms, and also visit us on www.aowent.com. That's www.aowent.com. And if you want to leave us a donation to the Angel of Words podcast, it is Cash App AOWNYC. Now, today on the Angel of Words podcast, we have health physicist from the Environmental Protection Agency, Mr. Joey Hurtado. Mr. Hurtado, thank you for joining us today on the Angel of Words podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thank you. Man, it's a pleasure. And I'm going to be honest with you, Joey, man, before I came on the podcast and, you know, I was talking to the to the lady who linked this up, Miss Linda Monteroso, who was uh, cl- who is a clinical research expert. And she was on my podcast episode 16 last season. You know, I was excited because I thought, oh, man, did I meet the guy that's going to tell me why it takes me three weeks to lose a pound? But. No, that's not what you do as a health physicist. So anybody who thought that was going to be the case, sorry, we'll have another podcast down the line for you. But apparently a health physicist is a code name that they use back in uh, World War II to, to describe the people that were working on the nuclear bomb operation. Is that true? Yes, that's, that's a fact. Yes, uh, oh, because man. of their... Yeah, because of the, what they were actually trying to accomplish there, they couldn't let the whole world know, right? They were trying to win a war and bringing the, the brightest minds out into the desert and working on things like that. So, yes, a lot of their, as a matter of fact, a lot of the nuclear engineering uh, terms are very obscure words like barn and uh, things that kind of mislead from what the ultimate goal was, was to produce these mass amounts of energy. But yeah, health physics and uh, nuclear engineering kind of have evolved together. Um, you know, the, the, the joke that, that I tell is that a nuclear engineer picks up a piece of radioactive material and the first health physicist was the first guy to be like, or the first person to be like, hey, maybe you shouldn't do that. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so it's not, but it is, you know. <laughs> so that's how it came to be. Um, and then from then... From then on, health physics really has just been uh, protecting the environment and people from the uh, the dangers of radiation, and then also to uh, to increase our our knowledge base of how uh, radioactive material can actually be useful for us in the medical industry and uh, other applications. So it's it's evolved over time for sure. Man, has it has it evolved? Now, sure Joey, you started doing this in the Navy. That's you right. were a Navy, a Navy submarine nuclear chemist and power plant operator. I would imagine, is that something you go into the armed forces when you sign up and ask to be? Like, how does that work, man? No, definitely not. So I was 18 years old, you know, just okay. out of high school, sitting in in, uh, in Texas, not a whole lot of opportunity there, um, especially if you're trying to, to break out of the norm, break out of the rut that you see everybody else in there. And um, I felt like the military was the best way to do that. Uh, I mean, this nuclear program, which I was aware of, they advertised this. And it's a program you can go into. You can get college credit while you do it. And you learn a trade. You learn a skill. You learn a lot about the, the nuclear industry. Um, there are a couple of 
different avenues that you can go down in the Navy. You can go surface ships, which is the big carriers are nuclear powered. And then every submarine is a nuclear powered. Um, so once you pass their two years of school, you show up to a submarine. And there is where I basically started health physics um, while everybody else was. And we had to learn each, each of our jobs. There, there's electricians, electronics, uh, the, the mechanics of it. And then I did the chemistry and the radiation side. Uh, the chemistry and radiation side is to make sure that the power plant water that's, that's circulating through there was in good standing and that it was not going to corrode anything and, and uh, potentially cause a leak, right? Safety is, is key there. And then also to uh, protect the workers that are going up and around the, uh, the reactor while it's operating. And so you have to, uh, to measure the amount of radiation that each person receives and whether they're close to getting a, uh, a, a dose, right? Whether it be um, just higher than normal dose. And what that allows us to do is lower the risk of any adverse effects that this radiation may cause. Yeah, and that's how I got started in the Navy. Joy, what's a, what's a normal dose of radiation, my man? That's great. Like, what's below, like, what's like the, uh, you know, the threshold there? Right. So there is natural radiation everywhere. We get it from the sun. We get it from the rocks beneath us. We get it from the concrete all around us. And a just a normal person in the U.S. gets somewhere in the neighborhood of 300 millirem per year. Um, that number has kind of gone up in the last 10, 15 years because we started to uh, to take into account all of our medical imaging, like all your x-rays that you go and get throughout your, your time. Average is about one a year. So that background radiation that everybody gets, those numbers are increasing, but there is an acceptable amount of radiation that pretty much everybody on the planet will receive. Wow, that is insane. So where are you like where are you break like where are you splitting the atom on the actual submarine? And what kind of submarines were you on? The ballistic missile submarines, attack submarines, missile submarines? Like, oh, were you on all three types oh, of submarines, yeah. Navy submarines? Right. So the of the two different types of uh submarines, I was definitely on both. I was on two fast attack submarines. Uh Long time ago, the first one I showed up to in 2004, back in, in uh, I'm sorry, back in 2004 in Hawaii. That was my first one. Then I went to a, a ballistic submarine and then back to an attack sub. Did that for 14 years total. And it was, uh, it was interesting. It was interesting. It was, and you're, you're involved. You're so involved in the job every single day. You wake up and it's, you know, reactor operations. You go to sleep and they wake you up, reactor operations. So it's just the repetition. You get a lot of experience out of it, that's for sure. And you just there monitoring the silos, man, just like making sure that everything's working appropriately. Like <laughs> yeah, that must be that's such a big responsibility, man. Were you ever nervous at any point? Yeah, yeah, of course. Especially first showing up. I mean, you don't know what the situation is gonna be. But then after you learn, right? That once you, you get rid of that that veil of, of not knowing that 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 ignorance and get past that, then you start understanding it and you start respecting it. On the uh, you know the attack submarines, the all of the power was generated by the nuclear power plant, and so it was just steady state operations, right? Not a whole lot changed, but we did have to walk around with our radiation monitors, make sure that everybody was still safe, that there was no cracks in in the shielding, um, 
that the reactor operations are going smoothly and that you're not losing control of that, that nuclear reaction inside the core. So when you're studying for this, you're learning about like ionic bonds and covalent bonds and things of that nature. Like you're going through a crazy like chemistry course for this, man. That must have been intense. Yeah, it was. It was. In those two years of going to school, it really did feel like, you know, four to six years worth of information being crammed down your throat because they're, they're trying to get you out there and uh, working on these, on these plants. Um, yeah, so, I mean, it's everything. It, it, you start out with uh, basic mechanics, fluid flow, uh, um, fluid mechanics, heat transfer. Um, you do reactor physics, um, chemistry, and um, let's see, what else? Radiochemistry. Uh, there's a there's big difference there, right? But I mean, you can test any water, but now test that same water that is radioactive. It changes the game. So I mean, they they teach you from from the very beginning. It's uh, how the atoms are 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 split or being used. How our fuel, the the certain isotope of uranium is going to be used for the fissioning, and how much energy that produces, and how to control the reaction. Basically, just to, to get rid of that fear that everybody has when you hear the word nuclear or radioactive. Now, it, these are machines that are splitting these atoms, right? Like there's not, there's no really human interaction with, with, with the atoms themselves, is there? Yeah, yeah, that's correct. All these operations are done remotely. So it's in a room that nobody can be close to. And I mean, a, a basic rundown of what On board, whatever. and this is on board. Correct. Okay. Yep. So if you have your, your submarine, there's a section right in the middle that takes up the entire, that section, and that has the react compartment. And basically what it is is that you have a, a combination inside of a, you know, a, a, a big enclosure, big metal enclosure with water running through it, and you have a, a certain type of uranium that's what's called fissile that can fission easily in the presence of a neutron. Um, I relate nuclear power, nuclear energy to a fire, right? You can have a, a very low burning fire, but as you add more fuel to it, now it's, it, the chain reaction gets bigger and broader and you release more energy in the process. And that's basically what you're doing. You're exposing more of this uranium for neutrons to interact with. Those neutrons are absorbed by the uranium and, makes it very unstable and then that's what breaks apart each time that it breaks apart like that two more go off in different directions and create that chain reaction and this is on the order of 10 to the minus 14 seconds so it's happening thousands of times if not millions of times in one second and so that's that's where a lot of the electronics kind of slow things down for human interaction we just don't have the capability to be able to to control that with human actions. So that's where that's where you bring in all of your instrumentation, your computers to run those things. But in the end, uh, they have made huge strides in uh, safety, inherent safety of the nuclear reactors. And at this point, you could let those things run. Everybody just leave, lock the doors, and it would eventually just kind of die off and and and. Uh, go into a hibernation state. So there, a lot of lessons have been learned in the, in the process <laughs> yeah, I here. Can, I can imagine. You man. know, from, uh, wow. 
from 1932 where the that was right after the first neutrons were detected that was um, a nuclear pile the very first one and you know going from that and then 13 years later dropping bombs out of the back of a out of a big bomber in Japan you know it, it's the the industry and the science evolved way quicker than we could uh, evolve the safety aspect of it and that's basically what we work on now. What I do as a health physicist, kind of go back to those areas. I mean, we live in a, a prime detonation spot here in, in uh, Las Vegas. I mean, here in Nevada, there were hundreds of, of nuclear warheads that were detonated for, for, uh, for testing. Yeah. And to see what the effects were in the ground, on the ground, in the air. I mean, so many different ways. And so now you have all this, this area that has fit these fission products and they would send us out. They would send the us health physicists over there to figure out how much of that stuff is there. Is there a danger, danger to the public and to people into the environment? And is it going to move around? Is there going to be rainfall? Is there wildlife? What's the water table look like? How easy it is to, to, uh, to scoop up and clean up or is it at an acceptable level? And yeah, that's what we do. We assess and to uh, to protect the environment and, and people. Yes, we're talking to Mr. Joey Hurtado, a health physicist all the way out from Las Vegas, Nevada. And is it true, Joey, that, you know, when these impacts happen, it turns these arid pla- these arid places, the, the, the soil into glass? In some places, yeah. Uh, as a matter of fact, in New Mexico, the Trinity site, um, the when they detonated it, it created a layer of glass that you're talking about. And that's just that intense heat, that intense heat and energy that is being released in all directions at, at, in a very short amount of time. And it just, it flashes and, and melts it and creates a glass. And that glass is called Trinitite. And uh, it, you'll see people that, that in the industry, that's that's one of the cool things to have, right, is a piece of, yeah. of little glass, little Trinitite from the site. I'm going to have to pay you for one of those. Send me one of those, man. I like to wear one of those around my neck on the podcast, you know? <laughs> man, you go out here in the desert. I'm sure you'll find some eventually. You just find, oh, yeah. Well, luckily, I have a cousin that lives in Vegas, so that shouldn't be too hard to there access, you, go. you know? There you go. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's a great thing. Uh, once I got out of the Navy, um, started looking at uh, different applications of health physics and radiation as a good thing. And then uh, my first job out of the Navy was at St. Jude as a health and safety. So all of their, they do a lot of research there. And so they use a lot of radioactive And St. Jude is a children's hospital out in Memphis, Tennessee. Am I correct? Yes. Well, yes, they're, they're all correct. over, but that's like the, the, one of the main ones, like one of the flagship St. Jude's, if you will. Right, right. That was the okay. original St. Jude was there in Memphis, Tennessee. Okay. That's right. And uh, so yeah, I got to see the medical aspect of it and how they're using it for research and for treatment. And I thought it was great. I thought it was great. Um, but then the Environmental Protection Agency came along and they were looking for a health physicist. So I, I thought, what what better way to continue, uh, you know, my, my efforts in, in keeping people safe. So, yeah, that's what I do now. Well, I'm part of the, Oh, no, no, go ahead. You're part of the... Yeah, no, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm part of the radiological emergency response team. So if in the event there was a, a lost radioactive source or some sort of a, a terrorist dispersion 
or, you know, something to where we needed to go find that radioactive source. They would call us, we would go search it out and clean it up if we need to. Wow. Infantry status, man, you know, yeah. radioactive detonation, you know, <laughs> crazy. <laughs> now, you know, but you know, Joey, man, back in uh, 2011, you were deployed to uh, Fukushima, Japan. For the second biggest radioactive uh, travesty in the history of, uh, you know, of of nuclear accidents, you know, the first one being Chernobyl in 1986. So what happened out there in Fukushima, if you don't mind, you know, giving us a little bit of info for those that aren't too hip to the game? Yeah. So Japan is notorious for earthquakes. And March 11th, 2011, a huge earthquake off the East Coast, happened just a few miles off the coast. And in the, there was a the subsequent tsunami that was formed. It came over their wall of Fukushima, which was a town that had a nuclear power plant there. It came over and washed out their electronics inside of the power plant. Now, when you don't have electronics, like I was referring to earlier, you are not in control of the chain reaction anymore. And it continued to get hot, continued to, to the, the residual of the, the previous fissions. It continued to build up, the pressure built up, the temperature built up. However, because there was a loss of power, there was no way to circulate that water through. Mm. The emergency backup, which all power plants are required to have, that was flooded out because it was in the in below sea level. It was basically in the basement of this. And so they flooded out, and they were the uh, diesel generators. So now you have a reaction that is not controlled and no emergency means of cooling it off. Pressure built up, and it popped out of the top of their uh, one of their pressurizers. And when that happened, all of that steam that was water at, at one point, steam takes up approximately a 1,000 times more space than water using the same volume of water. That went into the atmosphere and carried all those fission products from that from that uh, uh, uranium chain reaction into the air and over the the uh, country of Japan and into the ocean. Um, the Navy wow. had a couple of ships out there along with other countries that were unfortunate enough to not know that that plume was coming because radiation you can't see it, smell it, taste it, feel it. We don't have any, any faculties to, to be able to, to naturally uh, locate radiation. So they had no idea wow. that they were driving into this plume. Like the coronavirus. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, and it gets everywhere. And it's not until, you know, we have these uh, certain types of detectors that can pick up that energy. And that's all radi- radioactive is. It's just a release of energy in a different uh, frequency or a different range uh, of even even normal visual light, right? So it's just more energetic, and we have different instruments to, to pick up that kind of thing. But yeah, so after that happened in Japan, it kept coming out of the top and being dispersed, and the wind carries it everywhere. As soon as it shoots up in the air, it's now in the hands of the wind. So you can't control because because these, these these are you know you split the molecules, it turns into steam. Correct, and then the wind picks it up and takes it basically wherever it wants. Is that kind of like what happens? 
Well, that steam is yeah. the water. The water is what is what cools everything off. Okay. Right? On the I, inside of the reactor. Because I, I want everybody to get like a visual because when you know when I'm when I'm thinking about a nuclear power plant, I'm thinking the Simpsons and like this humongous cauldron looking yeah. situation oh. where like this ooze inside yeah, that is no, just no, no, hot no. as all hell can be, you know what I mean? And just powering everything. So that's so not I, the way it is. It's not the way no, it's constructed. No. Okay. I like I like to compare uh, a nuclear reactor to a fire, right? So yeah. in, in this particular case, imagine a whole bunch of wood on on a flame, but you can control that flame to make the wood burn a long time. Okay. This made that reaction uncontrollable. It burned that that would a little bit quicker than what it should have, and it re- released a lot more energy than it should have, which was then uncontrollable in itself, and that pressure. Mm. Now, it does not, it's not green, it doesn't glow, nothing like that, right? <laughs> the water and the steam was just a means of carrying those radioact- radioactive particulate from what was supposed to be inside of the, the power plant and is now outside. And so that water just carried it, that steam just carried it along and took it into, into the atmosphere. And that's how it disperses. It, uh, it gets carried by the wind and it creates a plume and then it goes off and it can go off sometimes in hundreds of miles in any direction. Um, just to give you a, a little bit of an, of an idea of how far it can travel. So when Chernobyl happened in 86, it wasn't until three days after it happened that Sweden picked up some radioactive air samples and they traced it back to Chernobyl. And wow. that's how the rest of the world found out. And that's a distance, man. You know, Sweden's all the way like on the north, like I think the, the northeast side of it going, going this way. That's crazy. Right. right. That's far, man. Right. And it's wow. because those very small particulates is being entrained into the atmosphere. And that's what we don't want. We want to keep it where it's supposed to be as a nice, yeah. solid uh, piece of metal that stays inside the reactor core and can be cooled properly to create good, clean, usable energy. But when it's outside of that, then it, it becomes a different game. Wow. Yeah. Joey, so, how do you clean that up, my brother? Man, that's oh, crazy. Man. Yeah, because you tough. go out there to clean it up, right? To find it and 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 uh and basically, you know, try to eliminate as much of it as you can. I'm sure that's not an easy task to accomplish. Well, it's still going on. People are still over there cleaning stuff up because of wow. that event. Yeah, ten years. It it was a ten year anniversary just a couple of weeks ago. Um. So, yeah, when I was a, um, I got was fortunate enough to be sent out there while I was still in the navy. They had trained me to be a radiological controls technician and had to deal with high levels of contamination. So we got sent over there. I was in a, a small group of four. There was already four other individuals there. So between the eight of us, you know, we moved around different Air Force bases. And basically what they were doing is they were using the military aircraft to scope out the area that was close to Fukushima, but also drop off supplies and to help others that were in need just from the earthquake and the tsunami, not necessarily the, the, the radiation aspect of it. But as these aircraft were coming back, there was stuff 
stuck on their blades because the blades were chopping through the air. And so oh, no. when they would come back, we would survey and it would just be screaming hot with this, with this radioactive stuff. Pilots would come back with, uh, you know, all of their gear being highly contaminated. And so basically we were just without freaking people out, right? With having these things click at a, at a crazy rate, what we would do is we would silence everything, go up to somebody and say, I need your gloves. I need your hat. I need your shoes. And they knew, they knew because of what had happened. But I mean, that's, that's part of what we do too is without putting a high alert on everything because not everybody understands this stuff. When you use the words radiation, radioactive, and nuclear, it's that, that fear, that, that unknown that kind of takes over and you're like, oh, I don't know what to do. But through through years of training, years of understanding, and then working with the stuff and, and uh, being respectful of it. I mean, it, it can be a very useful tool. So what is there, like an element, you know, are you using different elements? Like, you know, what chemical compounds are you using to clean this stuff up? Well, it depends on what exactly what it is. Because not okay. all, so, so there's radiation and then there's contamination. Yeah, because I'm talking about like ionizing radiation right now. Right, right, right. Okay. So ionizing radiation, that is just energy that is being released from an unstable atom. These unstable okay. atoms is what we call the contamination, the actual particulate, okay. right? So though that is what you want to stay in one place and know exactly where it is. The radiation is the energy that is being given off because it's so unstable. And that in that instability, it's trying to reach stability. And so it releases energy either in the forms of particulate or electromagnetic waves being emitted from the source. So how would you, you clean it up? Well, you basically have to attack its chemical properties. So if you have, you know, some, some radioactive form of iodine, well, iodine is naturally a gas. So then how would you do that? You can't just come in and wipe it with a paper towel. You know, you have to go through, through different methods. It has to be some sort of ventilation. Um, there, there are ways to collect it in, uh, like, filters, run it through a filter of some sort. But then there's also contamination. The contamination, for instance, the cesium. There's a, a certain radionuclide of, of cesium that likes to just coat everything. And it stays, you know, it's, its half-life is 30 years. Right? So only wow. half of, of what's there right now will be gone or have decayed in 30 years from now. So they, Japan will be dealing with this, and they'll be finding that, that radiation there for at least 150 years. They're gonna be, they're, they'll be finding the, the long-lived stuff for, for a very long time. Um, another way to do it is just to isolate. You know, there, there's, if you were tasked with going and cleaning up, you know, square miles of, of spinach farmland because that's that's your country's food source. I mean, how do you do that? Yeah. Right? So you actually have to set an acceptable limit. There's no way for you to be able to get rid of it. There's no way for you to be able to, to clean all that up. Wow. Yeah, so you would send in a health physicist. A health physicist would take a sample of, of something like that, let's say, for instance, the, the spinach or, or rice fields or, or anything like that, 
and take a small sample of it and figure out how much radioactive material is in a certain volume, right? Whether per gram, per liter, whatever it may be. And then try to assume how much people are going to intake of that. And then you can calculate how much energy that will give off inside of the body and bounce it off of a lot of the lessons that we've learned as, in, as health physicists to know exactly how much dose you're getting from what you're eating, from what you're breathing, from what you're drinking. Wow. So you cannot clean this stuff up 100%. There's, there's no way you can do that. But you can mitigate. You know, you, know, you, okay. can, you can wash things down a little bit and move it down the, the environmental chain. Um, rainfall does a pretty good job of that. It, it just really all depends on, on what type of material you're dealing with. What chemical properties do does this radiation have? And, and then that's how you know how to attack it. And it could be various forms of, 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 of chemical properties. Right, gotcha. right. It can be wow. liquid, dust, solid metal, gas. I mean, you name it. Any, any chemical, it can be, there, there's a form of, uh, of a radioactive isotope. How does that affect the human body in a, in a, in a, you know, in a large, in large doses? Well, what you don't want to do is get it inside of your body. Yeah. So you don't want to breathe it in because those small particulates will attach on the, the, the very small surfaces on the, the inside of your lungs. And then there they will sit. And they'll sit there and they'll release their energy until there's no more energy to release. Oh another God. way is, yeah, another way is through ingestion. Ingestion is, is uh, into your GI tract. And again, same thing. It will, the, the chemical properties of it will attach itself to whatever it has an affinity to. Like cesium will go all throughout the body. Iodine will accumulate in the thyroids. Um, there's a couple other radionuclides that are, that are used because they have an affinity for certain organs, and they'll they'll go there, and it's because of their chemical properties. And each one of those isotopes have been studied very extensively, and they they we know exactly how much energy is being released for every disintegration or for every decay that's happening in that material. So you can so account they, for everything. Uh, now for everything. So all that energy that's being deposited into your cells, whether it be in your lungs or in your GI tract or if it makes it into your blood or, you know, worst case scenario, if it gets to your bones. Uh, for instance, in Russia, they had a huge problem with bone cancer because of the plutonium, the plutonium mining, the plutonium processing. And there was no, no safety protocols for these, for these people, for these workers. And so they were ingesting and inhaling plutonium. And the body doesn't know any different. It sees plutonium as iron. And so your mechanisms for, for moving iron throughout the body to bring it to your bones so that you can create red blood cells, it does the exact same thing with the plutonium. It's a bone seeker. It pulls straight to your bones. And then it releases all of the, that massive amount of energy. And now you have bone cancer. Well, I mean, that's how Vladimir Putin kills some of his, <laughs> from what I read. Like, that's how yep. he attacks his enemies, bro. That's crazy. There's, yep. It's, because some have a shorter decay time or a longer decay time, yeah. if you want the person to suffer a little bit longer, you find the one with the longer <laughs> decay time. I mean, it's bad. 
they they really can tailor these these little uh, uh, bits of radioactive material to be weapons if they really wanted it to. And that's the unfortunate part because we can do so many great things. You know, along the same token, we use it for imaging, for medical imaging, uh, treatment, especially at St. Jude. I saw these these young kids walking around getting their treatments, and it's just, you know it really puts things in perspective. You go You're talking about radiation treatment, right? Right, radiation treatment. So it, it puts things in perspective on how large the field can actually be. You know, it can be used for bombs. It can be used for power. It can be used for for treating uh, people with with uh, certain conditions. Imaging. Um, they even use it for bulk food debacteria. I, I don't know. I, I don't have the right term. But basically, as food comes in, imported, they'll put it through these huge, what they call irradiators, and it'll kill bacteria from wherever it came from to try to, to keep the ecosystem in check here, right? You want to intermix a lot of the, the organisms. So, I mean, they, they even do it for something like that. So, I think it's important for people to understand that it's not bad. You know, from, from the, the Cold War and how bad things or some of the terrible ways that we have used radiation in the past when people hear that it's automatically goes into the into the negative connotation but that's that's not the case so it can be used for i mean you could use it for good you can use it for bad yep exactly. wow that's that's pretty intense. Now, Joey, I get a little, you know, I get a little worried though, man, with you know, with that water, man, pumping through there. Like, where do they put that water, man? Like, you know, I get scared that they're throwing it into the ocean and it's gonna contaminate the fish in the sea. Like, you know, like what happens there, bro? Like, how do we control that? How do you guys control that? Well, that's that is a tough one. If it is on a large scale, such as the Fukushima incident in Japan, there's no way to clean it all up like, like I was talking about. So naturally, it's going to make its way into the rivers, into the streams, into the ocean, mm. deposit. However, not as, as a way of controlling its concentration, it will naturally disperse. It will decay and turn into something different. It'll settle mm. out. Where you really have a problem is when it's concentrated in one area, mm. right? So now you're taking that fire and you're spreading it out over a huge area. It's still there. You're still going to have that energy, but it's not going to affect you nearly as bad as if it was all in one location, in one fire, and you're right next to that. So, I mean, that's, that's what a lot of the modeling takes into account. When it comes to uh, you know cleaning up sites and 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 dealing with these large scale contamination events. Wow, man, that that is intense stuff, man. Right now we're talking to Jerry Hortado all the way out from Las Vegas, Nevada, putting us on to what health physicists do, man. So now, Joey, man, you know you you went through that ordeal, you know now. In, in Japan, like, how are you guys dressed up? What gear are you wearing? You, like, in hazmat suits and, like, humongous gas masks? Like, you know, how, what, you know what's the vibe like with, with the gear that you're wearing? So that depends on what sort of environment you're going into. Okay. If you have an airborne concern, 
then you would definitely have some sort of respiratory protection. Okay. But by then, we, we'd gotten there seven days after the event happened. So it was the following Tuesday. I remember it was, man, it was dark, it was cold, it was snowing. But also what you don't want to do is walk around in those crazy suits and scare everybody. Right? That is worse yeah. than, <laughs> than what a, a radioactive source can do to somebody. Yeah. Causing mass panic and hysteria yeah. is a much yeah. more powerful tool. So you go in there looking unsuspecting, kind of inconspicuous, go and take your readings, go back into your, into your trailer or whatever, and you make your calculations and you go on from there. Whenever you pull out, the, you know, anything that, that's yellow or magenta or has yeah. the, the little trifoil sign on it, yeah. you work, you know, the, these breaking bad get-ups. I was it's just about to away. say that. I'm like, yo, bro, you out there looking like Walter White and Jesse Pinkman, bro? Like, what's happening? <laughs> yeah, you're working with some nasty stuff. Science, bitch, you know? <laughs> yep, so that's what you don't want to do. Crazy. Can you imagine walking down the, any any major city street wearing that yeah. getup? Yeah, of course it's going to cause panic. Yeah, so, it'll give me a little, yeah, I'll be a little bit disconcerted about you guys walking around my neighborhood dressed like that. That's for Exactly, sure. exactly. And so I would be praying that you were cooking meth, to be honest, <laughs> not worried about radioactive <laughs> activity. <laughs> that seems like the lesser of two evils, I suppose. Yeah, I know, man. Yeah, it's crazy, man. Wow. But that's one thing that we have to take into account is people's reaction. Yeah. So it, as a member of the EPA, if an area wants to uh, take some surveys in a neighborhood, for instance, because they suspect that there was some processing back in the 50s, uh, 60s, before all of these uh, regulations were put into place. So they would call us in and we would do those surveys. So what happens when, when one of the, uh, the people that live there in the neighborhood comes up and asks you about it? Well, you can't say, hey, I'm looking for radioactive material that was dropped here about 50 years ago and you've been exposed to it. No, you can't say that. Nah. Right. But what you can do is, you know, let them know or ask them questions, get them involved, get them talking about it. Um, the more people feel involved, like they're part of the process, they're, they're more willing to learn. So you have to take that into account. You have to take the, the people aspect into it. And just, you can't go in just full force. Yeah, no, you got to be discreet, man. You got to take, exactly. you know, this is how you say, rub it in slowly, you know? <laughs> right, right. I mean, one of the things we used to say on the submarine was, man, if people don't know we're here, we're doing our job. Mm, there you go. There you yep. go. Now, Joey, you studied two years, you said, while you were in, in the Navy Academy, I would imagine, right? You said the Navy Academy? Uh, it was uh, what they call power school, nuclear power okay. school. New, okay, yeah. nuclear power school. Then you went to Idaho State, right? And and you became a health physics technician? Yeah, so that was just while I was going to school. Um, okay. With, Is that like a bachelor's kind of degree situation, you know? So I finished my bachelor's while I was still in the Navy. Uh, oh, got okay, a, okay. Yep, got a nuclear engineering bachelor's from Thomas Edison State University. And okay. then got out in 2016. And, and went to Idaho State in uh, Pocatello, Idaho, and got a master's in, in health physics. Got so, you. Okay. Yeah. By that point, I knew that I wanted to get into the health physics realm. Fukushima in Japan, 
definitely changed my view on things. It changed how I wanted to pour my efforts um, in, into the field. I knew I didn't want to be on, stuck on the submarine anymore. And so that was a way out. Uh, got to go to Idaho for two years. It was a great school. I got a great education while I was working there. I'm sorry. While I was going to school there, I also worked there as a technician. They have a, uh, an accelerator. And one of the major projects that I worked on there was we would take this large chunk of zinc and we would hit it with some high energy electrons somewhere in the, in the eight to, to 20 MeV range. And it would create copper. This copper has a certain isotope, copper 64. A certain percentage of it is copper 64. Copper 64 is used is used in the medical field as a as a treatment. It has a, a, a short decay time and high energy output. And so that, that's what one of the things that that school would do is they would create this copper 64 and send it off to whatever medical facility wanted needed to use it. And, and so what kind of treatment do they use the copper 64 for? Do you know? You got me there. You got no, me it's there. all good, man. You know? Yeah. <laughs> all I know was we had to, we had to, to time it precisely with, with how long it was going to take to get there. And so what sort of energy or how much it was going to lose by the time it got there. And if they they ordered a certain amount, right. They ordered that, that, that fire to be a, a certain intensity. Well, you have to make it larger in order for it to show up in that condition, right? And as a health physicist, you're, you're watching the operations of creation. You're watching the operations of, of the separation of the, of the 64 from the rest of the zinc and the other copper that's being created. All the cleanup that's involved whenever you pull this thing out of, of the target area for the, for the linear accelerator. Shipping. Shipping is huge. You got to put it all kinds of labels, letting everybody know what sort of, of uh, material you're, you're transporting here. And so as a health physicist, I mean, it's, it's more than just one thing. It's a very wide um, field to get into. I don't know. Man, man, that, that sounds, I'll be honest with you, man, that sounds like a lot of fun, man. Like, it is a lot of fun. You know what I'm saying? Like, you're doing yep. some real stuff here, man. You know, this is like really intense, you know, scientific things that are literally changing the globe, you know, not just America, changing the globe, man. You're helping save lives. This is pretty, uh, pretty dope, man. I got, you know, kudos to you on that, man, for sticking Thank with you. it and finding that passion, man. Like, you know, and, and that's something that I like to talk about here on on the Angel of Words podcast, Joey, because, you know, I was doing a little research and, um, you know, there's, you're a unicorn, man. You're like a pioneer. You're one of the only 4% of people of like a Hispanic origin that are in the field that you're in. Like, you know, how does that make you feel when you hear statistics like that, man? Like, it's because of you, like, some kid is going to listen to this podcast and be like, man, that sounds dope. And, and like, you weren't even, you didn't even go to school right away, technically, for all this. This is like, you were, like, on the job training and schooling at the same time. You were able to, you know, make money and find the passion at the same time. So that's, that's also a really... uh enjoyable and dope part about like what you know of you learning how to be a health physicist man how does that make you feel yeah absolutely so it is encouraging i think to have a platform like this to get the word out to be able to talk to people and let them know what is out there 
especially younger. Um, they, I don't know of any 17 or 18 year old that knows exactly what they want to do. And if they do, they're, they're very lucky. And so I got into this. It was, it was just a series of, of random events. I'm really glad that it happened. I'm grateful. I'm grateful that, that I was given this path and I'm walking this path now. But yeah, of course. I mean, how does one get into a field like this? Uh, 4%. I mean, that's, there's only one way to go from here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know? like, all across America, my man, four percent, and that's not even that's all the fields of physics. That's not just how physicists like that's all physics fields. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, that's well, insane. that's that's gonna change. That is yeah. that is definitely gonna change. I, I've seen even from the beginning of my career until now, I have definitely seen more more people with ethnic backgrounds come through the ranks and show that they are scientists, that they are real scientists. And really what it takes is a passion for it. It takes an interest. And that's, that's the biggest difference. There's no such thing as, as you can't or that you can't understand. No, it's what are you interested in? If something like this is, is what gets you going in the morning and, and it, you know, it gets you through, through your work day, I love what I do. I'm one of the lucky people that gets to say that. I'm very fortunate. So... I would just say try as many different things as you possibly can. See what sticks. Get out there. Experience things. Don't be afraid to ask questions. You know, all of those. There's lots of avenues, lots of lots of ways to uh to figure out what your what your life goal is, what your path is. We're talking here with Mr. Jerry Hurtado, man, out from Las Vegas, Nevada, here, you know, putting us on to what health physicists do, you know, and man, Joey, like, that is really cool stuff, man, the fact that, you know, you, you, and what's even more amazing is that you get to travel, you know, you get to see the world. It's not like, you know, you're just stuck behind a book somewhere. You know, you're actually doing hands-on things. You're going around the world. You're, you're meeting new, you know, uh, people, different people, different food. Like, you know, what was your experience in Japan like? Did you even get a chance to, you know, enjoy a little bit of their culture? Oh, yeah. So, absolutely. Uh, whenever I went there for the Fukushima accident, I was fortunate enough to, to stay there for four months. And you, you can't be in a country performance and not experience it. So, man, the food was great. The people were great. Um, you get to see a lot of the differences in, in the way that society is, in the way that they treat each other, and the way that they even ride subway trains. I mean, it, it's completely different. Um, and what, one thing that, that definitely stuck out to me is I was sitting – in a car, parked car, the driver went in for something. And on the phone that I had that they gave to me, I got an alert saying that there was an earthquake. Three seconds later, you felt it in the car. Whoa, that's that crazy. message goes out to every cell phone on the aisle. And wow. Instantly, instantly. And so the sharing of knowledge is much more fluid there. The, uh, the, the collective you know, as a country, was was much more focused on on what what the country was trying to trying to develop. So yeah, I mean, Japan was great. It was mostly the the Navy aspect of it that they got me to travel around. Um, I still haven't been to the Europe side, 
but all around Asia and the South Pacific, that was all explored. And it was great. Yeah, you're absolutely right. This was an avenue for me to to expand my mind, expand my horizons, meet new people, try new things, and just get a perspective on life. And I'm very grateful for it. Now, that perspective on life, were you able to transfer that back over here in America, you know, and, 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 and you know, adjust your life to, tho to those uh, ideals that you learned out there? Uh, maybe little things. Yeah. Right? So, I don't know. I take my shoes off in the house now. <laughs> 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 yeah, just, just little things. And, and it's just Always like the most else. hygienic way to go about it. You know, it's the most yeah. hygienic way to go about it, man. Take off your shoes in the house, you know? <laughs> and it's just little things, right? As, as you go through life, you pick up little habits here and there. And it's mm -hmm. what you what you resonate with. It's the things that you take with you. Yeah. Uh, you. You can't emulate everything that you come in contact with or that you experience throughout your, you know, your short time on this planet. But it's the things that, that, that just seem right to you. I don't know. I, I really can't put a, a, my finger on, I, I didn't change drastically as a person, but, but it, it definitely gave me a little bit more insight into how closely related we really are all around the planet. I mean, people are people and we, we have to be, we have to treat each other like, like that way. You know, we're, we're, we're one organism that's just trying to find our way on. And that's, yeah. No, I respect that, man. And shout out to all my Asian people. I know they're going through it right now here in America, you know, with what just transpired in Georgia. And, you know, my heart, our heart goes out to you guys. You know what I'm saying? Uh, you know, we got your back, guys. You know, awesome people. Now, uh, we reached a point in the podcast, Joey, where it's time to play Five Words with Angel. Now, um, Five Words with Angel, Joey, I'm going to give you a word or a phrase or a question, and you're going to give me the first thought that comes to your mind, or word, however you're feeling. Are you ready? Thought or word. Yeah. Of the first word, or if you have a thought, man, go with it. You know, some people just, they go with the flow. They're feeling, the, they're feeling what I told them, and they just go off on a tangent. That's totally fine. However you feeling. All right? All right. Let's do it. All right. Let, let's do it. The first phrase is nuclear energy. <laughs> complicated <laughs> it's like a woman you know <laughs> <laughs> with with direction they can do beautiful things but exactly unchecked, you know? <laughs> unchecked it can blow up the world <laughs> yep oh man that's hilarious the second word is the United States Navy uh, knowledgeable through through many years of you know navigating the, the globe and whether it was wooden ships and iron men or now it's the opposite <laughs> you, you know it's it's you learn you learn a lot about science you learn a lot about uh, uh, traveling in, in environments that you're not used to and so I really do think that that, that paved the way for agencies like NASA right a lot of uh, uh, things that the Navy learned were taken into space travel, uh, especially in submarines. So I'd say that they're, that they're, they're tested. They're, you know, they've been tested throughout time. And so knowledgeable. Nice. I like that, man. I like that. 
The third word is Japan. Uh huh. Incredible. Uh, they're they're just such strong people. Um, for instance, I remember walking through Tokyo, and there was a crack that had happened a week prior, well, a couple of weeks prior from uh, an earthquake. And I was in the same area just a week later, and everything was completely fixed, like it never had happened. They just they they know how to come together for a common goal, and it it, it shows a lot of strength and a lot of hardiness as people. They definitely set aside a lot of differences amongst themselves. So strength. That's beautiful. Number four. I know something you something you were really used to covalent bonds, you know. <laughs> <laughs> covalent bonds. That's a sticky subject. <laughs> I like that. Sticky subject. There you go. <laughs> And the fifth word is uh climate change. Little curveball there. An awakening. I think that that it really is once we shift our understanding of things and, and implement more science into how we try to understand the world around us and our impacts on this world, um, our population is growing, and as a side effect, we do have to start looking at the the area that we're housed in. So, global warming. I'd like to call it climate change, you know, because that, that's what it is. It swings the extremes a little bit more than what it was used to, and we just have to understand that we don't. Unfortunately, we don't have enough data to be able to pinpoint exactly what our impact is going to be, and so you just have to go go into the dark with an with an educated mind, and so awakening. Now, now, Joey, is that real though, man? Is climate change real? There's a lot, you know. There's a lot of rhetoric get tossed around in America by politicians that aren't in the. I mean, with all due respect, you guys aren't. In, you know, you're not out there like a Joey Hurtado. You know what I'm saying? Seeing the world, you know, taking these readings, seeing, you know, you know, climates go from being one way to another. You know, is climate change real? Is it something that we should be worried about? In your opinion, as a scientist. I think the polar bears would definitely tell you that climate change is happening. You know, that's that's one symptom we're seeing is the our polar ice caps are melting; they're getting smaller, and those areas are now becoming harder for the for the indigenous life forms to to uh, continue to live there. Yeah, that's one way. Another way that you can tell is uh, coral reefs. The Great Barrier Reef is dying. You know, just because of a one or two degree increase in seawater temperature that allows more carbon dioxide to be pulled from the atmosphere. And that changes the, the carbon dioxide concentration in the water. And it, it's choking out square miles. I mean, hundreds of square miles, maybe even thousands of coral. And hurricanes, hurricanes are getting stronger every year. And that's because of those warmer temperatures in the water. It allows it to, to build up more strength. And so, is it real? Evidence seems to point to yes. Okay. I, I mean, I, me, just little old me can't tell you yes or no, but yeah, evidence, evidence says yes. 
what if you were a gambling man, you would probably bet on yes, is what you're saying. <laughs> but right. you know, we don't gamble here on the Angel of Words podcast. So maybe a little, but <laughs> but yeah. Well, we do but you would, you, Yo, exactly. You know, <laughs> and whatever we do there stays there. But yeah, yeah not yeah. Ma- but that's that's. I mean, but that's you know, it, it's good to know because you know, there's such a big debate. You know, and when when I hear about icebergs floating all the way up to the tip of Argentina, I'm like, I don't know if that's supposed to be happening. You know what I'm saying? Like you like you spoke about the coral reefs. I mean, that could damage the whole ecosystem. You know what I'm saying? You get you know, you you have people that, you know, fish that prey on other fish that that, you know, it is just a chain. You know, anybody that studied, you know, biology and, and science, they know that, you know, it becomes a chain. And if we don't have things that chain intact you know, we can, a, everything can break. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a long, complicated equation that yeah. can be thrown off balance on either side of that equal sign. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's kind of what we're doing. We're changing one small portion of it, whether it be carbon dioxide production or, or plastic in the environment. Uh, these are all things that, that have the butterfly effect, you know, the, the ripple effect throughout everything. And it changes those, those parts of that equation. And every every action has an equal and opposite reaction. Hey, man. So <laughs> Isn't that the first rule of physics or chemistry? <laughs> so what you put into I'll it, I'll never forget that. That's something I'll always remember. No, no you're yep. right. Yep. You're right. You get out what you put into it. So we just have mm-hmm. to be smart. We have to be smart about it. We have to educate our children. We have to, you know, get, get more into the science aspect and, and mm-hmm. un- really understand why things are happening the way they are. Yeah. And what do you say to those that don't believe in science, man? There's been a lot of those people, you know, popping around the last two years, brother. Well, regardless of whether you believe in it or not, <laughs> facts are facts. Hey, you know, you, apparently you can make up your own facts nowadays, and they're, they're you know, they're just as, as right as anything else, you know? It's so crazy. there's a difference between facts and truths. Facts are okay. real. Everybody has the truth. Ooh, I like that, man. You know, <laughs> spitting facts here, Mr. Joey Hurtado. I like that. <laughs> Now, I want to get back to nuclear energy, Joey, before we end the podcast, because, you know, 20 percent of America's energy comes from nuclear energy. Nuclear energy has zero carbon dioxide emissions, as we all know. Why don't we have more nuclear energy? Is it just about the money that fossil fuels produce for all economies around the world? That is one part. That's correct. It is much cheaper to pay workers to go and, and, and mine coal and to suck oil out of, out of the earth's crust is much cheaper that way. I think another major aspect of why we don't have more nuclear power are incidents like Three Mile Island, incidents like Chernobyl and Fukushima. And because of it, any petitions to create new power plants now are met with fierce opposition, whether it be from states or from the public or from, uh, you know, certain organizations that, that are trying to, I mean, with good intentions. But again, it's that, it's that lack of knowledge. They hear nuclear, they hear radiation, not, and all of a sudden automatically just wants to be shut down. So that's another aspect. There's a the financial, there's the, uh, the, the, the people, the, the humanity side of it. But then there's also the waste that's being generated. We don't have a good method of, of, uh, of getting rid of the waste from spent fuel. 
We just keep pulling them out of these reactor cores and storing them in cement off in the desert somewhere, burying them in a hole. Well, eventually, those holes get filled up. And then as populations grow, and these locations for these long-term storages is far enough away from everybody in, in a place where basically is, is cut off from environmental pathways, you know, rain, water table, uh, livestock, wildlife. So basically out in the desert somewhere, out in a very dry area. But we just keep piling it up. There's no good way to process it. There's no good way to change its properties so that it is not just a huge radioactive pile. So financial, humanity aspect, and waste generation. I'd say those are probably the, the, the three largest factors into why we only use 20%. Wow. Wow. Well, Mr. Joey Hurtado from the Environmental Protection Agency, health physicist, it has been an absolute wonder to have you on the podcast. God knows I love science more than a lot of other things. A lot of people may not know that, but it is one of my like guilty pleasures, even though it should just be a regular pleasure. But, you know, I really <laughs> appreciate you, man, uh, coming on the podcast, you know, giving us all this really valid information and, uh, you know, giving giving the, the children out there, you know, some more some more avenues to expand their horizons on different careers. Now, is there any way that, you know, if somebody wanted to reach you or a website that you recommend that, that children go to or anyone that's a young adult goes to, if they're interested in, in, and, you know, and in going into a career such as health physics. Uh, as far as like the health physics, oh, man, I wish I could tell you, I know the EPA has, has good websites. If you just go to EPA.gov gotcha. and they have sections there for uh, radiation protection, um, some of the things that we've worked on in the past and some of the cool toys that we play with in, in order to detect that type of radiation, I'd say go there as a start. If you want to get into the health physics realm, um, there's every state, I believe, well, pretty much every state has a nuclear power plant. I've heard of so many people in the health physics uh, field start off at very entry level at a nuclear power plant and they just find their way, whether you want to be a reactor operator or you want to be a health physicist or someone that, that dives into the, into the pools where they keep some of the spent fuel. I mean, there's just so many different types of jobs. So definitely say what's out, uh, see what's out there. Um, yeah, I wish I had more more links for you. I, I I'm kind of so good, my brother. You you have done more than enough today on the Angel of Words podcast. Thank you so much, everybody. That was Mr. Joey Hurtado, all the way from Las Vegas, from the Environmental Protection Agency, health physicist. Thank him for being on this podcast thank you all for watching and tuning in don't forget to tap that subscribe button also don't forget to follow us on all podcast platforms the website is www.aowent.com if you want to leave a donation to the angel of words podcast it is cash app aownyc thank you for tuning in everyone we'll talk to you later